Welcome to the Celebration Church Orlando podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and we hope you are encouraged by today's message. Amen. If you have um, the scriptures with you, I want to go ahead and and jump into this passage um, right now. The Bible says this in Ezekiel chapter 37, looking at verses 1 through 10. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. Somebody say very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. I want to I want to pause there for, for just a second because there's a, there's an aspect of this that 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 I think is worth exploring. You see Ezekiel has been brought into this environment with basically a cemetery that have, of people that had not been buried. Dry, dry bones everywhere, just decay and brokenness as far as the eye could see. God gives him some very unique instructions. He tells him to, to prophesy, to speak the word of God over what appears to be a dead situation. And, and what the Bible says here at verse 7, it says that Ezekiel prophesied as he was commanded. There's, there's no hesitation. There's no delay in his being obedient to what God's word said, even though, even though it, it, it looks like they didn't even have the ingredients to hear the word that was about to be spoken. There was no ear canals. There was no, there was no ligaments. There was nothing that would allow the word of God to be transmitted into the reality of their lives. But nonetheless, the Bible declares that, that Ezekiel trusted what God said and he was obedient, even though from what he could see, it didn't look as if they had the ingredients that would be necessary for them to respond to the word of God. I've discovered in my life that it's not hard to be obedient to the word of God when we trust him with the results. And, and, and I want to encourage somebody in here right now. I believe that when we look at our workplaces, sometimes when we look at our circumstances, we, we see what God's word says, but we also see the, the decay and the brokenness that is the reality of our own worlds. And if we're not careful, we won't speak the word of God over it because we believe that we won't see the results. But I, I want to challenge somebody in here today. I dare you to speak the word over your situation and trust God with the results. I, I dare you to begin to look at the, the, the circumstances that's in your workplace and just begin to declare the goodness of God over it and trust him with the results. The Bible says that as an act of faith that Ezekiel trusted God with the results and he spoke the word of God and there was something that came from it. It says that, that as I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound. There was a sound and behold a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone and I looked and behold there were sinews upon them and flesh came upon them and skin covered them and but there was no breath in them so he said to me prophesy to the breath prophesy O son of man say to the breath thus says the Lord God come from the four winds O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live so I prophesied as I was commanded and the breath came into them and they stood and they lived on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Such a a powerful image of how something that appears to be dead and broken, just with obedience and declaring the word of God over it, allowed it to stand and to live and to be an exceeding great army. Today I I wanna talk to us about this important topic of of how do we respond to the word of God? How do we speak the word of God? 
but in also how do we activate the word of God in our own lives. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this message title down. I simply called this The Valley. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this amazing church, God, and I thank you for what you allowed us to be a part of. Father, I pray over the next few moments that as we hear your word, God, that much like Ezekiel, God, that we will, we will begin to see things come together, God. We will see some, some things begin to take shape and take form, God. We're going to be obedient and speak as you've commanded us. So, Father, I pray for open eyes that we can see you. I, I pray for open ears that we can hear you, God, and I pray for open hearts that we can receive the truth of what it is you want to do in here today. Father, we give this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, I, I've, I've always loved this particular passage of Scripture because of what, of what it represents. When you, when you look at this story in and of itself, it's, it's a powerful supernatural move of God, and, and, and we see that. But, but what I love about it is I, you get a chance to see the bookends of the kingdom of God at work with the story. And, and here's what I mean by that. You get a chance to see redemption as well as restoration. Now, I, I realize that when we hear that, and many times when we say it, myself included, we kind of use those terms interchangeably. Redemption, restoration, revival. We, we kind of use them all together. They all start with R. It just all makes sense. But, but the truth of the matter is there's a distinction between redemption and revival and resurrection. See, redemption is the transaction. Resurrection is what you get as a result of it. Let, let me make it a little bit more, more plain. The Bible says it this way. It says that the wages of sin is death. That means that the very fact that we were born in the likeness of, of man, of Adam, we inherited a sin nature. And so what the Bible says is that that payment, in order to cover our sins, something had to die. We see this in Genesis, that the moment that, that Adam and Eve sinned, that there was nakedness, there was, it, was, it was revealed to them that they were flawed and they were broken. So as a result of that, something had to die in order to cover their sins. So from that point forward, we kind of see what we call God's redemptive plan beginning to move throughout humanity. So it's this idea of understanding that when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us in Mark as well as in the book of Hebrews that he gave his blood as a ransom, that he made the payment that was necessary in order to make us right. So that means that we have a part to play in all of this stuff. We have a part to play in redemption. We have to take it and apply it to our lives. But the moment that we do, we have access to some other things. It's, it's kind of like this. If I, from the kindness of my heart, decided, you know what? I'm in Orlando now. I want to give everybody in here season passes to the amusement park of your choice. We would all celebrate. We'd be filled with joy. And as you walked out, our guest services team would hand you the, the gift certificate that lets you know what you have in your possession now. Please don't actually expect that. This is an illustration. I don't want to break anybody's heart. But if we did do that, you would walk out and you would be given a gift card or something that would symbolize that a transaction took place. It is now your responsibility to now take that and apply it to your account so that you can get access to all the things that are on the other side of the gates of the amusement park. This is the reality of what happens when we begin our relationship with God. It's because of the, of the shed blood of Jesus, it gives us access to these things, but our responsibility is to take it and add it to our account. Because the truth of the matter is none of us could pay the cost. None of us could afford what it would cost in order for us to truly inherit the kingdom of God. I can't be the only one that's ever been in a place where you've actually like gone shopping and then you've seen the price of something and you try to play it off like it wasn't that expensive. 
True story, like my wife and I, not too long ago, we were, when we were actually in the process of looking for a home here in Orlando, we were like looking all around. So we saw this one neighborhood and we kind of knew that it was out of our price range. We were like, hey, you know what? It doesn't hurt the dream. Plus I still have this part of my life where I believe that I'll walk into like one of those fancy models and there'll be somebody in there and be like, the spirit of the Lord sent me here and told me you were gonna be coming. I've just bought this house for you. Like those things happen. I'm, I'm still waiting for mine. So if the Lord is stirring you in any way, <laughs> Let me know what neighborhood to be at, and I'll meet you there. So I love to, I love to go in and, and look at some of these neighborhoods and dream and get decorating ideas. So my wife and I, we're walking through this one, and it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It is stellar. We're walking through. Everything is so beautifully laid out. We're taking pictures. They probably think we're going to come back and rob the place, but it's okay. So we're, we're, we're scouting it all out. We, we come out, and then, of course, it's like you, you walk out into, like, the, the center, and everybody's there, and they want to start having a conversation with you. So as they start talking with us, and she starts, like, showing us the plot of land and the vision for the community, we're all into it. So I, I get down to it. So I'm like, okay, so for the model that we just walked through, ma'am, tell me, what's, what's, the, what's the cost for something like that? And she, she looks at me, and she says to me, unflinching, for that, it's, it's $1.5 Now, for some of you... Maybe you got more money in your bank account than I do, so that may not be a thing for you. I'm in ministry. So when I heard that, there, there, was, a, there was an aspect of that where I, I wanted to stumble back. But here's the thing. I felt that when she said the statement to me, she was ready to judge me. So I had to, like, unflinchingly look at her and say, is that it? $1.5 How did you guys build this home for only 1.5 million. Like, are you guys using quality products? Like, now you gotta start like shooting darts at them in order for her to get defensive and start backing up a little bit. But like, oh, hey, okay, okay look, let's, let's get past all that. Um, can I buy two lots, put my house in the middle, and build a six car garage? That's what I'm looking for. She's like, well, no, sir. I'm like, that's, I can't take it. Okay, Megan, we're out of here. We can't. Here's what you've done. I've walked out and I've preserved my integrity. I'm surprised they didn't check our credit when we walked in, but nonetheless, it was all good. But, but, but here, here's the point that I'm trying to illustrate. There are moments where we walk in and there's such sticker shock that we know that we can't afford it. Well, that's exactly what it was with us as it relates to our, our walk with God. There's no way we could afford that all that God had for us. But because Jesus saw it, he paid the price for us. But now it's our responsibility to simply apply to our account. So when we look at this incredible story that, that has laid out this beautiful illustration of redemption and, and restoration and, and resurrection, there's a couple of things I want to I highlight to us. First and foremost, we see, that, we see that this incredible miracle takes place in the valley. It, it takes place in, in the valley. And, and, and the reason I want to accentuate that is because there's a lot of connotation that's attached to the valley. Whether, whether you're in the church world or not, we understand for the most part that when you think about valleys, it's, it's, it's a low place. It's a, it's a place where, where there's not a lot of perspective. You just, you just got to get through it, and we understand that. But then when you layer in the language of the kingdom of God, we often see that, that valleys are used in contrast to mountains. So now when we think about what we understand about valleys and, and mountains and valleys versus mountains, we all want to be at the place where we have this mountaintop experience, and we just want to get through the valley as quickly as possible. I understand that because the valley can be, it can be narrow, it can be, it can be lonely, it can be, it can be dark, it can be a place of frustration and disappointment. And, but what, I, what I've seen throughout scripture is that it's in the valley that people have experienced their greatest miracles. It's, it's in the valley that people can have their greatest breakthrough, but I do believe it's all a matter of perspective. See, I believe that there's victory in your valley if you have the proper perspective. 
We see in several instances in the Bible, I want to highlight just a, a few of where we see that people had entered into the valley and yet they still experienced victory. See, in the Exodus chapter 17, the Bible tells us about the children of Israel and they had just been liberated from Egypt and now they're on this journey. And as they're on this journey, they find themselves going through this valley called Rephidim. Rephidim means rest. So if we put the language together, the children of Israel, they had been slaves for 400 years. And they finally have gotten liberated after several profound moves of God. They're entering into this valley that is labeled as rest. And they're thinking after 400 years, we're finally going to get some rest. But it's while they're in this valley, the Bible says that they were ambushed by the Amalekites. They had never even been in battle before. They've never, they never had to wage war. They've never been in a situation where they've had to defend themselves. But here they are in the valley looking for rest, but now they're in the middle of a war. I'm not, I'm not sure if you ever found yourself in one of those seasons where you felt like, okay, um, I can finally get to this season of my life, and once I get there, whew, then I'll be able to breathe. I'll, I'll finally be able to relax once I, if I, could just get to the, if I could just get to the new year, because we all have our New Year's resolutions, we have our vision, we have our dreams, and if I can just, if I can just get there, then I will have it all mapped out and all put together. I'll have it all figured out only for us to be ambushed by the enemy. The Bible says that while they were being ambushed in this valley environment, that, that Moses took a different position, that he was actually on the mountaintop. And what the Bible says about Moses is that as long as his hands were lifted up on the mountain, there was victory in the valley. So th while they were in the valley, there was somebody that was on a mountaintop with their hands surrendered. I don't think that it's something that we should look at as separate, but I think it's something that we look at together. That means that if we can still surrender to God as if we are on the mountaintop, I believe that we can have victory even while we're in the valley. Is it possible for you to be able to worship God in the valley the same way that you would if you were on the mountain? Is, is it possible for you to recognize that even though I am in the valley, if I have a heart that is full of surrender to God, then maybe I can still have victory? What's interesting is that when Moses got tired of having his hands lifted up, they didn't send reinforcements out into the valley. They sent reinforcements out to Moses. That means that he was surrounded by people that wanted to make sure no matter what is going on in the valley of your situation, my responsibility is to make sure that you keep your hands lifted up. See, hands being lifted up is a, is a sign of surrender. It's a sign of, it's a sign of victory. The Bible says we enter into the house of God with holy hands lifted up. This, this is why when we come into worship environments like this, the worship team is leading you to, to lift your hands up. It's a sign of surrender. It's also a sign of victory. Because I believe it's when we surrender to God that we experience victory and we're sending a message to the enemy and letting him know, though I may be in a season of opposition, I'm still giving God praise. I'm still giving God glory. I'm still giving God honor. And you may not understand it, but I believe that there's a victory in my ability to surrender. This all took place right in the valley. But in addition to that, I also see that it's in the valley that we, all, we have our, our greatest victories. We see this with, with David and Goliath. The Bible says that, that for David and his team, that they were in the middle of the valley. And what the Bible says is that while they were in this valley, that Goliath came out. And for 40 days, he would go out and just declare these negative things about God's people, declare these negative things about God for 40 days. I want us to think about that for a moment. Because the way that our minds begin to work, they say that ideally that after we hear something 21 times, it is now built into our brains and that becomes what we remember. We see it with advertisements, we see it with all type of things, 21 times. So it's almost double the amount of time that the children of Israel hear that they're going to be defeated. The children of Israel hear that they're, that they're not worthy. So for almost 40 days, they hear this statement over and over again. And you know what happens when you hear something over and over again? You, you begin to believe it. 
You don't, you don't believe me? Watch this. I don't know how many times I have been at a place where I've heard a song that I absolutely hate, but by the 30th time I hear it, I'm nodding my head to it. I'm singing along to it. Why? Because it's gotten into my mind to such a point that I'm beginning to move as a response to what I'm hearing. What, what are we listening to that we've heard so much over and over again that it literally determines how we move and how we function and what our faith looks like? The Bible says that with David, he came out on the back end of that. And because he wasn't, he wasn't exposed to all of that negativity, that all he saw was the facts. We're in the valley, but I got God on my side. So instead of him being so consumed with what was being said by the enemy, he was more consumed with what God's word said about his situation. And he went into battle and he was victorious in the battle. What I, what I love is that when David began to face off against Goliath, he said that you come with a spear and a sword, but I come in the name of the Lord. David, David was battling and freestyling, and you didn't even know it. He said, you came with a spear and a sword, but I come in the name of the Lord. Like, he was, he was spitting bars, and y'all didn't even recognize it, but what David was saying, he was saying, like, I don't care about what the enemy is showing me in my life. I'm not consumed about all the evidence. What I, all I know is that I am entering into this valley with faith, and because I have faith, there's this knowledge of knowing that the battle is not mine. It is the Lord's, and I'm going to go into this thing knowing that I am surrendered, I am victorious, and I don't got to do it in my own strength. This all took place in the valley. See, I believe the enemy wants us to believe that if I'm in a valley season that I just, that I just got to hunker down and, and get through it. But I believe it's through David's revelation of what happened in this valley when he defeated Goliath that, that it inspired these thoughts that we see in Psalm 23. Yea, though I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil because God is with me. I believe there's victory in your valley as long as you have the proper perspective. But the truth of the matter is there's also a tension that we have to manage because it's in the valley we can be exposed to, to a lot of different things and we have to have the proper perspective of it. We see with the prophet Ezekiel that in just Ezekiel chapter 3, he's in what many believe to be the exact same valley. But when he's in the valley this time, he sees the glory of God. And what the Bible says is that the glory of God shows up that it's, it's so powerful that he humbles himself, that God speaks to him, lifts him up, and gives him vision and clarity for his life. Same valley, this radical encounter with God. Then we, we fast forward about 34 chapters, and now he's brought back to this exact same valley, and he's seeing brokenness and decay and despair. Have you, have you ever been at a place where I'm in the exact same spot, but it's a different atmosphere? I'm, I'm, I'm exactly where I was called to go, but I'm exposed to something different. This really speaks about seasons. And, and, and for the past two years, my, my wife and I, we've actually been living in a, in a state that has all four seasons. Imagine that. And, and what's interesting about living in a place where you actually see all four seasons, you, you got you to gotta ride it out. You, you have the summertime, you have the spring, you have the winter, you have the fall. But what you realize, especially when you look at like the way the trees grow and you, and you look at the way the plants are, you recognize that every season serves a purpose. Same spot, same backyard that I'm looking at, but there's a season where some things may be dormant. But then there's another season when they begin to grow. There's another season when they begin to flourish. And, and what I want to encourage somebody with in here, I just feel it in my heart, that right now you may be in a winter season. Winter isn't coming, it's arrived. And, and, and now that it's here, you, you're, you're looking at your winter season and you believe that it's dead. You believe that there's no hope. But I want to let you know that dormant does not mean dead. And if you can just recognize that maybe you're being exposed to a different season, but it's the same God, and I believe that your spring is coming, I believe that your growth is coming, I believe that your reproduction is coming, but don't leave in your winter season. 
That's what the enemy loves to, to stir us up to do, to convince us to, to step away even in the winter season. And what we see with this passage of Scripture is that Ezekiel has now been exposed to this, this brokenness and this, and this death and this despair, and, and now he has to navigate through all of it. What do you do when the valley that you're supposed to be passing through turns into the graveyard where it looks as if your hopes and your dreams are passing away? Ezekiel was given the responsibility as a prophet and as a priest to now declare the word of God to God's people. They have been in bondage for about 70 years now in Babylonian captivity. They were 700 miles away from home. That means that they were far away from where they wanted to be, and they've been there too long. Their, their hope was gone. They, they felt diffused. They felt defeated. They felt deflated. But yet, there was still hope because the word of God had then come to them. So when I, when, I look at, when I look at what's going on, when, when Ezekiel is exposed to all of these, these dead bones that are laying around, there, there's a part of me that can't help but to ask this question, how did, how did they get there? Like, how, how, how did this vast army of people end up there and they were not even given the courtesy of being buried? We're aware that this is a vision that God had given to Ezekiel, but, but you know what many believe in, in many rabbinical circle, in many rabbinical circuits? They believe that, that this was an image of a group of people that tried to leave Egypt before it was time to. Now, leaving Egypt, that's not a bad idea. Like, they had been in bondage for 400 years. Why, why would God not want them to be free? Why would God not want them to break loose and to go into another direction? Why, like, why would God not want them to do that? But what they believe is that they broke free before the timing was right. You know, it's, it's possible to be in the, the right place at the wrong time. And, and, and what I want to caution us with is make sure that your ambition doesn't outpace grace. There's, there's moments where we can, be, we can get a vision, we can get an idea of where we feel like we're supposed to be. And if we're not careful, we can allow that ambition to stir us up so much that we actually get ahead of God. And what the Bible is declaring is that maybe, just maybe, that these men got out before the grace of God was with them and it left them to be exposed to an enemy that they weren't equipped to fight. Are you, are you fighting a battle in your own strength because you stepped out before God told you to do it? This is what many believe could be a possibility of, of what's happening here for, for these men of God that have been laid out there. So as they're laying there in this, in this broken condition, as they're laying out in this broken spot, Ezekiel is given some instructions. And his instructions are simply this, to go and speak God's word. But, but, why, but, but, but when we think about it, these men were left out, exposed to the heat, exposed to vultures, until there was nothing left. Nothing, nothing left but, but bones. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a spot where you just felt like, I got nothing left. I got, I got nothing left to give. I, I got no hope left. I have no freedom. I don't have any joy left. I just feel like I've been left out to rot, and I have nothing left. And it's often in those spaces that we find ourselves to be the most desperate. But I believe that it's in that desperation we can actually get a breakthrough if the object of our desperation is the right thing. So I remember about 20 years ago, for my, for my wife and I, I got into a car accident. And when I got into that car accident, like, it, I wasn't able to work for about a year and a half. So in that year and a half, things got really, really tight. I mean, like, really, really tight financially. We, we struggled. That's, that's, my, that's my polite way of saying we were broke. We, we, were, we were broke. We were, we were in the middle of the struggle for real. And, and I remember there were these moments where we, we, we were desperate. We were, we were desperate trying to figure out how we were going to make ends meet. My wife was the only one working. I couldn't, I couldn't work. Herniated disc in my neck. 
torn ligaments in my back. And for that whole year and a half, can you imagine what that does to the man's identity? Can you imagine what that does to the man who's supposed to be the protector and the provider? Like, not only am I dealing with pain going to physical therapy, I'm also just dealing with the, the identity issues of feeling like I can't even provide for my family. I can't, I can't even provide Christmas. Not that it's about gifts for my family. It's, it's, a, it's a spot that I felt in, and I was truly desperate. And, and there were many instances where I felt like I was, I was being compelled to, to, to just, just, just slow down. I really felt like there was this voice that was telling me, like, man, you need to, you need to stop going to church. You need to, you need to scale back a little bit. Because we got to a point where literally going to church was a matter of me counting the miles to see if we had enough gas that could sustain us the rest of the week. So here we are, desperate. But every, every single time, every time that I felt like there was a voice that was telling me, well, maybe you need to scale back. Here's what I'll tell you. God will never tell you not to come to his house. So it became very simple to me. Is this God telling me not to come to the house or is it the enemy? Is it me looking at my true circumstances that's dictating it to me? Because what I don't want to be is a person that allows my faith to be predicated by feelings. So what I began to do is I said, God, I'm going to go to your house and I believe that you're going to honor me as a result of that. God, I'm going to continue to give the little scraps that we do have, but I see it consistently throughout scripture that when you people give, it's because it's an act of worship and that you're going to honor that. In my own strength, in my own logic, it makes no sense why I would would do it. And church, I'm not here to give you any get rich quick scheme, but what I can tell you is that God will meet you at the place of your sacrifice. And every time we showed up, God showed up. Every time we made an act of sacrifice, God honored it. I don't know who I'm talking to in here, but I believe there's a voice that may be compelling you and telling you to scale back. Ask yourself, is this God leading me to disengage or is this the voice of the enemy? I promise you, God will never leave you from a place that he's going to tell you to stop being connected to community. He's never going to lead you to a place. He's going to tell you to stop being obedient to his word. He's never going to lead you to a place that's going to tell you to stop being obedient. So what I'm asking you to do is allow the voice of God to be the narrative that you respond to as opposed to the voice of your feelings. This is the exact space that we, that we find ourselves in, just wondering what do you do in these, in these broken moments. But the Bible says that, that Ezekiel was given this, this commission to speak the word of God. And when he spoke the word of God, it says that, that there was a sound. I, I want to I submit this to you, that there's, there's a sound in this church today. There's, there's a sound in this atmosphere today, and, and I'm, not, I'm not sure if you can feel it. I'm not sure if you can hear it, but there's a sound in here. See, sound precedes a move of God. We, we, we see instances in case after case that before God moves, there is this, there is this sound. And, and what I want you to know is that that word sound, when we look at it in its original language, it has several different renderings. The word sound in English is one way that we look at it, but another version of it would also be shout. There was this, there was this shout. In addition to that, there's the word noise. So all three of those words are connected to the same Hebrew word that we see rendered here. So when it says that there was a sound as a result of God's word being spoken, we can interchange and say that there was a shout as a response of God's word being spoken. There was almost like this eruption of praise. And what's so fascinating when we look at it in its original language, it all starts with humanity. Whenever you see the rendering of this word sound in its original language, it's not like a random sound, like something falling to the floor. It's always connected to humanity making a sound. So here's what I believe. I believe that when the word of God was spoken over a dead situation, that even the bones began to respond with praise. There's, there's a power in our ability to respond with praise. We see throughout the Bible this, this, this instance of us telling us to, to make a joyful noise or sound unto the Lord, Psalm 100. I think it's worth noting to let you know that your praise, even in the midst of your pain, it confuses the enemy. 
See, 2 Chronicles 20 tells us this. It says that when they were about to go into battle, the children of Israel, that they, they didn't have the skills or the people that would allow them to be successful in this endeavor. But the Bible says that they sent Judah, which means praise first, into the situation. And the moment that they began to praise, it literally confused the enemy to the point that he turned their swords on one another and they began to destroy one another. I believe that when you are able to praise God in the midst of your situation, it brings confusion to the enemy because in his mind, he's saying to himself, I know what you're going through. I know that I hit you with my best shot. How are you coming to church and you're still lifting your hands up? It confuses the enemy. When you continue to give God praise in spite of all that you're facing, I believe it makes the adversary wonder, why are they filled with so much joy? Why are they filled with so much peace in spite of what God is doing? It's because those of us of the household of faith know that God inhabits the praises of his people. And I may be in a minute or in a moment where I'm facing opposition, but because I can declare the good of God in spite of all of it that God shows up and when he shows up the power and authority of God shows up that means that walls are going to fall that means the enemy is defeated and I don't have to do it in my own strength it's, it's worth noting that that there's power there's power in your praise and I believe there's a reason why the enemy loves to to silence our praise when, when you think about it regardless of what our our, our background is it's it's a it's a it's a point of tension when we come into church because when we all come in with our collective experiences, there's some of us that, that, are, that are just demonstrative and, and waving our hands. There's other of us that are, that are chill, nodding our head, doing a one-finger thing. Like, there's, there, there's a reason why. It's because sometimes it just feels uncomfortable. But I'm a sports fan. I've never had that behavior when I go to a sporting event. I've never had that behavior when I go to different instances. Why is it when we come to the house of God, that's the place where we want to be the most conserved and, re and reserved? Do it, Jesus. <laughs> did, did, any, did, anybody, did anybody see me? Like, what, what are we doing that we can celebrate things in the world, but we can't celebrate what the army of the living God is doing on our behalf? We're, we're going we're to do this right now. I want everybody in here to just lift their hands up. My God. No one is a weird Christian. No one is weird. But look, but look at this, a room full of people that are surrendered to God. I'm surrendered to God, but do you know what your hands are also sending a message to? To the adversary saying that I am victorious in Christ Jesus, so I lift my hands up regardless of what my preference is, regardless of what my comfort is. Can we give God some praise in this place today? You see, these sounds, they, they precede a, a move of God. We see time after time that there's these moments where we hear about this move of God that takes place. But first, there is this sound. There's a, there's a power in your praise. And, and, and here's the thing that happens. After this sound comes, after it erupts from the, from the very bones, the Bible says that the ground begins to shake. That, it, that the, ground literally, the ground literally begins to shake. Now, now that, that sounds a lot like an earthquake to me. That, that sounds a lot like things being, being shaken up. And, and, and what I know is, like, whenever the ground that you're standing on literally begins to shake, it's, it's possible for us to, to lose stability. It's, it's possible for us to, to fall down because, because we're trying our best to balance ourselves. But, but here's, what I, here's what I've learned about the way that you can survive an earthquake. It's imperative that whenever things are being shaken up, the best way to keep yourself from falling and being injured is to simply lower your center of gravity. And if I can somehow lower my center of gravity, even though everything is being shaken up, I have the ability to come at one with the thing that is being shaken. 
And then somehow, because I have lowered my center of gravity, which is a posture of surrender, which is a posture of prayer, that is when I'm in this place where my center of gravity has been lowered, that as God is shaking up the ground, I believe that he is shaking some things loose off of my life. So while I am in this position, I'm saying, Jesus, shake it off of me. Any fear, shake it off of me. Any condemnation, shake it off to me. Any guilt, shake it off of me, God. I'm asking you to shake it up, and I'm going to stay in this position until all the things that have attached themselves to me that are not of you. You, I'm going to ask you to shake it up, God. Shake it off of me, God. Shake off the bad relationships. Shake off the condo. Shake it all off of me, God. I'm going to stay here, God. I'm not going to stand and do it in my own strength, but I'm asking you to shake it off of me. And what I've seen in my life is when I've gotten this position and I've allowed God to shake things off of me, he also begins to shake things together. That means that things that should be disconnected, things that were not even in proximity of one another, because I'm in a position of prayer, that not only do broken things come off of me, but then God begins to bring things together that I could have never done in my own strength. So now I shift to God. Put it all together, God. I know that you're working all things together for the good. And when I look at the puzzle pieces of my life, I would have never been able to orchestrate this in my own strength. But because God began to shake some things up, because he shakes some things off, he's now shaking it all together. God is shaking some things up in your life, church. I believe that God is shaking some things off of you. And you may be losing stability. It may not be comfortable, but lower your center of gravity. Trust God and recognize that he's shaking it off of you. He's shaking things up, but he's also going to shake some things together. If you believe that in this church today, would you give God some praise? He's shaking it up. He's shaking it up. Here's four things that I want you to write down because the Bible says that when we engage into this relationship with God, it simply says that we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I want you to write these four things down. I want to invite the worship team to come out and, and join me. When God begins to shake things up, he begins to shake things up and we get a new structure. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the bones came together. Bones represent structure. They represent stability. See, here's what I believe happens. When we begin to engage our relationship with God, I believe that God begins to give us new structures, new rhythms, or could I say new patterns. Here's what that looks like for us practically. The rhythm of I'm going to go to church. That new, that new rhythm. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to serve new, a new structure, a new pattern. It's, it's when God begins to put things in place for us to begin to build our lives on. We, we see this time and time again. I believe not only do we get this new structure, this new rhythm, this new pattern that God lays out for us, but here's the second thing we get. We get new strength. We get new strength. Because what the Bible says here is that there was a tendons and muscles, and this is where all the organs were developed. That means that everything that's inside was now formed after the structure was in place. Many of us are, are wondering why we don't have the proper heart or the proper perspective. Maybe it's because we don't have the proper patterns for those things to land on and put together just yet. I believe that God is leading all of us to find the proper patterns and rhythms because once we have that, then a new strength comes to it. Here's what that means practically for some of us. The muscles, the ligaments, they're the strength, they're the muscles. Those are things that support the bones. So what are the structures in your life? I believe in the context of the church community, we have, we have the community, we have, our, we have our groups. We have the ways that we can engage these structures that are meant to provide strength to our life. So not only do I have this structure now, but now I have this strength, this community of people that's, that's standing alongside me. That's, a, that's an important aspect of our walk with God. But here's the, here's, the, here's the third thing. We get a new identity. We get a new identity because what it says is that a new skin was then placed on them. Skin is the outward. So first we have the bones. 
then we have the muscles, and now we have the skin. In other words, the way that you can identify and recognize who they were. That means that it became very visible that a, that a transformation took place. I think many times we're trying to, we're doing our best to make sure that people can see what God is doing in our lives instead of just being obedient to what God told us to do with our lives. Before people can see it on the outside, we got to allow God to work on the inside, and he's given us a structure. He's given us strength and support, and then we begin to see this identity come together. But what the Bible says is that those routines and rhythms weren't good enough. Yes, you have this new structure. You're going to church every week. You're, you're serving. You're giving those patterns that allow the grace of God to land on it. Yes, you have this new support. You're connected to community. You're, you're getting involved in, in, in next steps. You're, you're going to our fast track on Wednesday because everybody who's saved goes to fast track on Wednesday. Uh, you know, you, you, ha you have those things in place for sure. You get this new identity. That means that I'm identifiable by what God is doing in my life. But in addition to that, the Bible says that there's this new spirit that shows up the fruit of the spirit, that means that now I have this ability to, to walk in joy even when I'm in a circumstance that doesn't necessarily create it for me. I'm able to walk in peace even when I'm in environments that are still filled with confusion. I'm able to walk with victory even when everybody around me is struggling with defeat. This new spirit changes our perspective that God literally puts it inside of us. And I believe that when God puts it inside of us, it has the ability to change the atmosphere. You see, for, for me, and, and I've shared this story with you guys, but, but when, I, when I broke my ankle and I had to go and get surgery, they had to put a plate in my ankle. And when they put this plate in my ankle and I had to go through physical rehab and all those other wonderful things, when I finally got to a place where I could start traveling again, there was this part where I was concerned about, okay, is this, is this gonna set off alarms when I, when I go through the metal detectors? Because I don't want no problems with TSA. I'm not sure about you, but I just, I don't, I don't want no problems. So my, so my doctor said, no, you, sh you shouldn't have any issues with it, um, with the newer machines. But some of the older machines, they haven't necessarily updated, so they can't make a distinction between what's been placed in your ankle. So just be mindful of that. So I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what the threshold is for a new machine versus an old machine. So I'm just bracing myself. But he gave me every sense of confidence in saying, you have nothing to worry about. So lo and behold, I'm, I'm traveling for the first time and I'm, and I'm walking through. And do you know that when I passed through the threshold of the metal detector, the alarm went off. And I'm not talking about just like one of those little beep ones because you left your watch on or your belt still on. I mean, it was like this different type of an alarm where like everybody looked over and everybody was looking at me. They kind of pulled me to the side and, and they began to ask me some questions because somehow the machine could tell that, that there was something in me that was different than all the other ingredients that they were used to. They began to ask me some questions about, okay, sir, like you set off this, this particular alarm with this particular sound, can, can we have a conversation? I said, yes, I, I, I got surgery and they, they put a plate in my ankle, I got some screws in my ankle, so that could be it. They kind of wand it down, they check and they make sure that everything is good. And so once they saw my scar and saw that everything was good, they said, okay, sir, you have nothing to worry about, there was just something in you that set off the alarms. As I, as I walked away, I paused for a moment because his words they began to stir something inside of my faith because what he said is there is something inside of me that set off alarms when I walk through it. And what I truly believe happens when the spirit of God lives inside of you, I believe that you begin to set off alarms that causes people to draw attention to the fact that I am a child of God, that I am victorious, I am filled with joy. So the truth of the matter is we should not be Christians who are trying to fly under the radar. We're supposed to be people that set off alarms everywhere we go because there's something inside of us that's different than everywhere else. I'm not better, but I can tell you there is something inside of me that lets you know that I am full of joy. So when 
you go into your work atmosphere, it should be filled with joy because there's something on the inside of you that demands it. When you walk into in some, in situations where there should be battles, you should walk with victory because there's something inside of you that lets you know that you have victory. When you walk into certain environments and there seems to be depression, you should be able to walk in with a sense of grace and peace because there's something on the inside of you. When you're walking through environments and you're looking at someone's marriage that's struggling, you can still see hope. You can still see joy. You can still see love because there's something inside of you that has given you a different perspective. When you hear about a sickness or something that can't be healed, there's a different perspective because there's something inside of me that tells me that by his stripes I am healed. Church, I'm not sure who I'm talking to, but there is something inside of you that sets you apart. There is something inside of you that says you are different. There is something inside of you that's given you victory. There is something inside of you that is another in the fire. Let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. For more information about Celebration Orlando or to get in touch with us, please visit celebrationorlando.org.